0: Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And it seems like every January, uh, I end up finding the opportunity to talk to my good friend, Paul Dervazi. uh, just tends to be that schedules kind of lean that way. And so we did record a pod around this time last year uh, on games and education. Uh, And so really excited to have Paul back again today as we're going to talk a little bit about participatory culture. But first, uh, to give a little bit of background, uh, Paul's someone I've known for several years now. He was previously in the classroom, English teacher himself in Toronto. And uh, so we've had a chance to collaborate off and on. And now he's actually out of the classroom, at least the K-12 classroom, uh, as he is a lecturer at the University of Toronto and also the co-founder and ceo of Goldbug interactive which we'll learn more about here over the course of today's conversation but i'll just kind of start things off by saying paul great to see you welcome
1: back to the pod Wow. I, I cannot think of a better way to start the new year than chatting with you, Andrew. And uh. the highlight of 2020 so far, for sure. Um, I'm always grateful to receive your emails and to be invited to chat with you. We always have some really interesting chats even before the podcast starts. And I look forward to continuing the conversation while it's being recorded. See, Paul, this is my strategy. If we talk in the first like four or five
0: days of the year, then I can be the highlight for a moment before all the other cool stuff. (laughs)
1: It's usually also the highlight by December the 31st of of that same year. Oh,
0: man. Always, always great. I feel like you're just on the forefront of whatever is innovative in education, particularly when it comes to engagement, immersive learning experiences. I know that you've not only done that as a practitioner in the classroom, but also through research and some of like your doctoral work. And so uh, participatory culture, let's dive right in. Let's talk about that today for folks that don't know. I mean, you understand what that means as a phrase, but maybe don't associate that with education or or kind of the context within which we find ourselves teaching today. So can you speak to that as uh, our topic for the day? Absolutely.
1: So the, the reason the value of thinking about participatory cultures, in fact, it helps us better understand our students, and it helps us better understand the world that we live in. And, and of course, in education, we want to align our practices with the world that we live in, because we are uh, allegedly an institution that prepares kids for the world. And, and uh, so it's <laughs> important to understand <laughs> ideally, uh, what's going on in that world. So participatory culture was a term phrased by one of my my favorite scholars, a guy named Henry Jenkins, uh, who writes a lot about games and fan culture and media culture. He's a, he's a media scholar that was at MIT, I forget where he's now, I think he's at the University of Southern California or something. So he coined the phrase to distinguish the way that kids and anybody is accessing media now versus the way that, you know, for example, that I accessed media many decades ago. So when I grew up, I lived in a pre-internet world in the stone age of media, where we just had television and radio and telephones, and the telephones were not mobile. They had cords that were attached to walls, and you could only go as far as the cord would let you. And so the way that we typically engaged with media at that time, whether reading or watching, was what Jenkins would call spectatorial, a spectatorial relationship with media, which is we sit down and rather passively, it's not ever entirely passive because your brain is thinking when you're watching or when you're reading or whatever the case may be, but we're, we're sitting there and, and basically watching something that is complete. The show's been written, it's been filmed and you're sitting there and watching, you know, almost like this play being enacted or the story's been written. Well, with the advent of digital games one and the internet two, media changed in that all of a sudden you could affect the medium you could by uh you know liking a facebook post or commenting on a youtube video or participating in a reddit forum or jumping over a mushroom or shooting a target all of these allow you to interact with your medium that you're there's more of a feedback loop between the audience and the medium itself and that had a revolutionary effect on the way that we're used to engaging with our entertainment, with life, with all kinds of things. So that inaugurated what Jenkins would call participatory culture, where there's a whole generation of students that are called by marketers Gen Z that grew up only knowing the internet. They don't know a pre-internet world. And they've grown up basically playing on iPads and on Roblox and on social media and on Instagram. And all of a sudden they step into a classroom And that classroom very much works typically, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to paint this with a broad brush, but typically according to spectatorial guidelines, uh, that classrooms tend to be a model where you have a teacher transmitting information to a group of hopefully obedient students That are sitting at their desks and receiving this information and that's exactly the kind of model that we saw in the 20th century and you know it starts with the sage on the stage or the the, this idea of, of the knowledgeable person sharing information the same way that you have a tv show that's kind of sharing information with the world at large And many of the physical and institutional practices of schools really reinforce that spectatorial model. And there are lots of teachers for a long time and lots of educators who've challenged it. We talk about the fact that we want to move away from teachers lecturing too much, that we want to make students active. We want to give them voice. And most importantly, in in this participatory world, we want to give them agency. We want to give them control and ownership of their learning and and for them to feel engaged in a way that's unique to them. However, as much as we talk about this at conferences and books, it's very difficult to implement. And I think any teacher who's listening understands that, that despite our best intentions, the very kind of well-worn path of business as usual in teaching is very difficult to break out of. So what's really fascinating and what drives to the heart of a lot of the work that I do and what is really the basis of the two courses I teach at the University of Toronto is looking at what are the the models of participatory culture outside of school so for example social media and games are the two areas that i look at one of my classes is called games and learning and the other class is called social media and education and both games and and not even video games even board games or card games are participatory, right? This is something that even when you were playing Dungeons and Dragons in the 1970s, you were participating. And and that's one of the reasons they say that Dungeons and Dragons is enjoying a resurgence, is that it it really appeals to participatory culture now that we're used to interacting, but it's a face-to-face version. So we include that kind of non-screen socialization. And, And that's also maybe the reason why board games are exploding right now card games there's never there's never been more non-digital games being made and then never mind the BMOF that is the video games industry like games are huge because they are an indication that we are living in a participatory culture and people like games because they understand that they offer a participatory experience social media on the other hand is probably the most influential manifestation of internet technology. I mean, we could, uh, social media is responsible now for affecting elections. Social media is now responsible for starting revolutions, for having people create groups. I mean, if when the historians look back to this period in history, they will likely identify social media as that kind of technological innovation that socially and culturally had probably the largest impact of any other technology up until this point or at this time. So typically, I mean, it depends on the teacher and the school, we shy away from video games and social media in the classroom. They both have been aligned with toxic behavior. Uh, we know that there's a there's a very toxic side to gaming. It, it's been associated with addiction, with antisocial behavior, with street racing, with all kinds of things, right? And um, That's a very narrow view of video games, to be honest with you. They are an, an unbelievably powerful medium that are doing all kinds of interesting things, particularly a lot of indie developers and small developers creating absolutely brilliant works of art in video game form. Unfortunately, the dominant sort of discourse around video games in the media has focused on the negative, on the addiction, on, on that type of thing. That's changing. I think there's a softening view on video games. I certainly a lot of parents know that it got them through the pandemic, for better or for worse. Uh, and, and uh, you know, a lot of our kids spent a lot of time socializing online using games. I mean, it was a savior for many of us. And I think that we're starting to understand that the medium is much more complex and offers a lot more than what we have traditionally thought it offers. On the other hand, we have social media where our, our kids are spending, and adults, most of us are spending a lot of time on social media, whether Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever the case may be. And it has a huge social effect and it can also be quite toxic. I mean, there's body image issues that are arising, FOMO, all kinds of different, you know, we're, we're looking at each other, at the best versions of each other's lives and, and feeling badly about our own as a result of it. And these are the negative sides, but it's also been, you know, the light side of social media, and again, looking at the pandemic, for many kids, it was a lifeline. They were able to maintain their social networks even when socially distanced. Um, there's incredible support communities online through social media. Incredible learning that takes place. I mean, all instructional videos on YouTube, uh, different kinds of lectures and you know, very specific skill sites, like you can find out how to put on makeup, how to fix your heater, all of these things are available through social media people sharing stories about their struggles, which become empowering for other people, all kinds of sharing art, sharing all kinds of things. So as most technology, there is an advantage and a disadvantage to both. However, what both games and social media teach us are how we can think more along participatory lines. And then the next step is how do we either incorporate social media and games in our classes in a way that is effective and not harmful? Or alternately, how do we learn from games and social media? To make our classes more participatory, more engaging in a way that is relevant to our students. And so this is sort of the crux of what I'm interested in the work that I'm doing, because fundamentally, it's driven by a desire to make schools better and more interesting and more relevant. Uh, I do feel that we're losing a lot of really, really great people because they don't play the school game very well. And any teacher knows this, you know, we all have those kids at the back of the class that we know are really bright kids that are just not doing their homework, not interested in sitting down and listening to somebody all day, not on board for any number of reasons. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with relevance. And I think that one of our missions as educators is to make schools more relevant, to make schools fun, to recapture an element of play and learning. because. One thing that's happened because of the industrialization of schools, the fact that they are ultimately industrial institutions, is that they suffer from this kind of culture of labor, that you feel like you have to do labor to get to succeed, like hard work is rewarded, and that if you don't work hard, then you're not going to be rewarded. And that's fine. And there's nothing, you know, I would never be one to turn down hard work. But what I would say is, There is a difference between work and labor. Labor is kind of imposed, almost meaningless work. If you're working at a factory and you're putting a cap on a bottle for eight hours a day every day, that's not satisfying work for most people. And what it does is you're paying the bills with this job and therefore it feels like labor. It feels almost like a weight when you're doing it. But any, anybody who's had the pleasure of working hard at something they love, then you're working hard, but it doesn't feel like hard work. It feels like you're happy to do it. And I think for most of our evolutionary history as a species, we worked very hard, but we saw the meaning in our work. We felt fulfilled by our work. We understood that going out and hunting is going to bring back meat for the people, and therefore we are doing good, meaningful work. When you're putting bottle caps onto these bottles in a factory, you don't know where they're going. You don't know, you're kind of alienated from the outcome of your work. And I think there's a truth to that in school. There's a lot of labor going on in school. A lot of work that doesn't really have any purpose other than passing the time. You know, we call that busy work, but there are bigger versions of that. Schools don't really resemble the outside world all that much, although we are using them as these incubators to prepare people for the real world. So one thing that's missing from this formula is that idea of play and fun and engagement, you know, engagement is at the core of all of this. And we almost feel that in this industrial culture of labor, that there's no place for play in a place of business and school is to some degree, a place of business. So when there's no play, you know, nature invented play to teach. That's nature's kind of way th- th- to have kids and animals learn. I mean, if you look at a little kitten who's pawing at a ball of yarn, they're, they're learning to play murder. <laughs> they're learning to play hunting. Uh, and, and, you know, that's what yeah. they're doing. right? And when kids are are playing, you know, whatever imagination play and they're playing store or they're playing doctor or whatever the case may be they are enacting roles that that are going to help them define themselves in the future, like who they are and how do you participate in society. And and if you watch kids play, it's intense. I mean, they are locked in and they're really into what they're doing and the whole world disappears and they're in this kind of flow state. And that's nature's way of saying this is how we learn, right? So, So we have thousands and tens of thousands of years of evolutionary history that have tied play and learning that we've cast aside. And now early childhood educators, kindergarten teachers, grade one, they know this. They use play in their practice. And it, it's, this is not a mystery. I'm not, you know, sort of unfolding something that hasn't been seen before. But what, what that gets lost very quickly as you start moving up the grades. The older you get, the more play is lost. And I think that's a huge mistake. We live in a culture that is absolutely saturated with entertainment. Everything, are, you know, when we look back historically, we're going to be seen more than anything else as a culture that was fascinated by entertainment. I mean, we live in Netflix and video games and our phones, and, and that's a huge part of it. So why can't school reflect that culture of entertainment? I, th- I think it was Marshall McLuhan that said that anybody who thinks that education and entertainment are two different things doesn't understand anything about either. <laughs> which I thought was a really interesting statement, right? Yeah, and, and we do the opposite. Like we, we separate, we feel that if you're having too much fun, there's something wrong with, with what's going on here. And I know that's not how everybody feels, but, but I think that there's that sense of it. So by using games, by using social media, by using interactive technology, I think is a really great way to recapture an element of play and engagement and return that to the sacred halls of learning. And there are amazing people doing great work in that area where they're using social media effectively in their practice, Uh, even with younger grades, which is surprising because you think, how would you use TikTok with grade threes? It's not even age appropriate, but you can actually use paper and cardboard kind of models to mimic some aspects of this. And part of it too, a huge part of this is the digital literacy component, the digital citizenship component, because if we ignore video games and social media and kind of make them these evil things that should exist outside of school we are abandoning our children to those media. We are not giving them the tools that they need to to, to be healthy in the way that they interact with that media. Uh, we need to do more for digital citizenship for media literacy, for digital literacy because our kids now a, a very important feature of participatory culture which is fascinating to think about is that, They live in media. They don't live with media. It's actually an environment that they live in. They're listening to music on their phones. They're watching Netflix. They're engaging with their friends on social media. It is their habitat. It is their environment. And when you lived in, you know, sort of in a tribal community 20,000 years ago, your habitat and your environment, let's say, was a forest. Well, you would be educated to know everything about that forest what plants would yield medicinal properties, which animals to avoid, what mushrooms to avoid. You would be literate in your environment. 20,000 years later, they're living in a media environment but we're not giving them the tools to, to, you know, what are the poison mushrooms on Instagram, right? What are the, the, the health benefits of, of playing a video game? And as an educational institution, as, as education writ large, rather, um, we have to address the reality of this media saturated world. And we have to be better in terms of creatively creating a connection Between the world that our kids live in, which is informative and rich, and there's so much being offered there, and bringing that richness into the classroom in a healthy way.
0: Gosh, as you share that, Paul, I'm sure there will be educators who that sentiment hits their ears and makes them say, Well, I don't have the time. I'm not willing to put in the hours it would take to get to that place. But then I almost like go back to what you were saying earlier in that everything you said about the need for play and experimentation for kiddos in a classroom to learn, grow, feel connected, and to take ownership through it is also true about us as adults, classroom practitioners, and our ability to design learning experiences in the classroom. And I understand that maybe not every lesson has the type of flexibility. Uh, Maybe not every unit gives you the same degree of freedom that you would be able to kind of pursue some of these different creative avenues to implement a little bit more of that participatory culture into the classroom. But I think it's imperative uh, when you start to think about just kind of teacher dropout or burnout and bore out too. I read in an article recently where, gosh, we're just so tired of doing the business of being the foreman at the bottle cap factory, back to your point exactly. <laughs> that exactly. I, I don't see the relevance in it, maybe as the, as the leader of this class. And so then of course, I'm not going to be inspired to show up every day or to find a creative way to help you put a bottle cap on. And so I think that there is uh, a lot of opportunity there for job satisfaction, fulfillment for us as educators and simultaneously then that leading to learning experiences that capture everything that you're talking about. And I also think there's a little bit of a challenge there, too, just to maybe set you up for for the next point here, Mm -hmm. but... You have to understand these social constructs or these mediums initially, right? So whether it's a game or it's or it's the latest piece of social media, because if history has taught us anything, Facebook becomes Twitter and Twitter becomes Instagram and Instagram becomes TikTok and TikTok will become something else, right? And, and so there's a sort of a ever-changing evolution there. But, but really when you get to that place and, and you reference this too, where you go, okay, this exists deconstruct this for what it is and whether we think about that in the context of their environment their digital environment or just in terms of the mechanics of what that is doing to engage them and have them be open to losing themselves in that learning Mm -hmm. experience and then how do we then transition that to the classroom uh is something that i know we're both passionate about uh, but it is a, a tough leap i think for people sometimes to go well i hear what you're saying where does that hit what I'm being asked to do? We don't make
1: those connections. And I'm sure your courses do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so much there. You nailed so (laughs) many, so many good things. That's why I love talking with you because you get it. And you're, so let's start with the first point you made, which I think is such an incredibly important point, which is, it's not just about the students. It's about the teachers. And, and when I have had to mark, you know, 60 essays that take on an identical topic, and I'm sitting there in a, in a low-level depression, and <laughs> and not because, listen, it's okay that they're badly written. They're kids. It's my job, and, and I would never, you know, many of us as teachers fantasize about having that magic assistant that will do all of our marking for us, right, And then because uh, it's the worst part of the job. Let's face it. Repetitive marking is, to me, was the worst part of the job. But on the other hand, when I've, you know, fantasized about this assistant that will do all the marking for me, I also feel like, well, I'd be letting my kids down because by marking the stuff is how you get to know them. You get to know what their nuances are. So it's kind of one of those things, but it does feel like factory work. When I am working through 60 essays, it is an assembly line job and it feels like labor. I am literally, I'm not joking about low-level depressions. Over the years, I've realized my mood gets a lot worse. It goes down when I'm confronted with piles of marking and I'm sure a lot of my colleagues out there will will understand that feeling so all of a sudden let's look at this right so what is a feature of games a feature of games is choice you have choices you know you can choose to build your mage with fire or with ice you can choose to take the left path or the right path When you give your students choice for assignments, let's say, so you read a novel and you give them, you can either create a comic or a podcast, or you could write a, you know, whatever the case may be, you give them four or five choices. One. And we learned this from games, you give your students agency, and this could be for any subject, and this is, you know, kind of very practical application of participatory culture, that you can find really creative ways that kids can respond to the material, because regardless of what the response is, they have to absorb the source material to produce, you know, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a comic, whatever the final product is then you on the marking end also benefit because you're marking a variety of things you're not just doing the essay over and over and over again and then so that kind of creative option that you offer your students comes back and makes your job easier as well so that it's really really important that part of this ethos this kind of participatory ethos uh is also making teaching and learning more interesting for teachers it's it's invigorating their job and then going to your point about my classes when I teach my games and learning classes, I mentioned before we started recording, it has proven to be an absolutely transformational experience for these kind of young pre-service teachers. Um, they come into the course and you have a range of, you know, I teach people in their mid-20s to mid-30s. They're all becoming teachers. Usually I teach some masters and PhD students who are already teachers. But for the most part, they have not thought much about how games and learning can work together mm-hmm. and and so the course is laid out in such a way that we spend the first third kind of thinking about why games are particularly important right now what are the, some really incredible case studies of people that have used games in really amazing ways then I start getting them to think a little bit about how games can interact with different subjects how you can use games in science in English and math and geography whatever the case may be and then I have them think about you now have to design a game for learning, for whatever subject you teach. Usually they create teams. And when I first started teaching this class, I honestly thought that what I was gonna get was a lot of kind of like monopoly for biology or jeopardy, you know, like, which is fine. It's better than nothing. But what's blown me away is the games that these young teachers come up with are brilliant. They are so unique. It is just overwhelming. I, I wish I'd kept them all and put them up on a website and shared them with the world because it is ridiculous how consistently at the end of this class they produce these magnificent games. And when they're done and they reflect on the class and their experience, many of them feel it has not only transform their view of teaching and learning as a whole like they, it's completely but for many who were on the fence about the profession that were thinking ah, you know I'm, I'm in teachers college but I'm not sure I want to become a teacher for x reasons actually say that it's renewed their interest in becoming teachers because all of a sudden they see that it offers an opportunity not just to complete lesson plans and kind of turn the wheel business as usual but they start thinking of themselves as designers and maybe even artists that have this opportunity to create something completely different, to blow the walls out of the classroom, to rethink and using games as a way to help them imagine how classes can be different, how learning can be different, because we don't have alternative models. Everywhere we look, schools look pretty much the same. The systems more or less work the same way, whether here, China, South America, they don't change very much. So what games offer us are models of how engaging learning systems can come into play, and we can use those in Classroom practices. And when my teachers, especially with that design element at the end where they design their own games, they are convinced of the power. And the, and it's a bit of a trick because I don't get them to do the, you know, to design these games to become game designers. I mean, great if it does. It's more to empower them, to let them know you have a superpower you didn't know you had, which is you are a designer. And that could help you create really kind of powerful instructional experiences. So that that kind of energy that these pre-service teachers get from thinking very differently about their practice i think would nourish teaching as a whole when teachers see the possibility of this and your point about time is well taken we know how busy teaching is and how once you've set your teaching schedule once you have your classes set you don't really have the time to make massive changes while the game is on, while you're while you're teaching and learning. And, and we know this. How many of us have taken PD, felt incredibly inspired, thought about all the great things we were going to do, and then September hits, and then you get caught up in the wave, and you're not able to implement 75% of what you wanted to do. It's the reality of it. So For young teachers, it's easier because you still haven't actually baked your practice and you can start thinking about how you can invigorate. But for older teachers that want to experiment with this, yes, it's a lot of extra work. It could be a lot of hard work. But in my experiences of designing kind of more experiences that are non-traditional, it's so much fun to re-envision these experiences that in the end, it is more work, but it doesn't feel like work. Like I've enjoyed it enormously. I'm playing too. I'm having fun thinking about ways that my students are going to respond when you know, these unexpected things happen or when I introduce a video game in the classroom or I ask them to respond, you know, using social media, which reminds me that the, the, the other element too is, of course, fear. How many teachers out there that are listening to this are not comfortable with social media, are not comfortable with video games? And certainly, you know, if you don't know that world, it's really hard to think about how you can connect that world to your practice. I mean, it's just like, there's so many steps there. But the one thing I would encourage, um, I learned the most about this stuff from my kids. You know, I don't have to know a lot about TikTok, to get them to respond to something using TikTok. Like, you know, read this chapter and make a one minute TikTok video, right? I don't have to know anything about TikTok. They do it for me. They explain it to me. So what I would encourage is bring the students on board, learn about what world they're in, have them think openly, have open discussions. Okay, so you're on TikTok. What are the ways that you think TikTok would be useful for this classroom? What are the ways that you think Minecraft might help this classroom and you have really passionate smart kids that actually have thought a lot about this stuff you'd be surprised. And all of a sudden say oh you could do this you could do that, and have them take the lead and learn from them so many of the elements that I've used in my practice in the past. I've learned from students. You know, they've, they've approached me and said, could I do this assignment a little differently by using you know, a walkthrough video? And I'm like, sure, let's see what that looks like. And then I see it and I'm like, wow, this is incredible. I've never even seen a walkthrough video before and, it, and it's a perfect way to respond to this particular assignment. So by enlisting students and, and opening ourselves up to letting students teach us a bit about where they're at and what's interesting, not only do we nourish our practice and better connect it to where our students are, but they love, as we all know as teachers, kids love to help out. Because all of a sudden they're doing something real. They're actually affecting the world. They're not just doing some assignment that's gonna be burned in the ceremonial fire at the end of the year. This is like something where they're having a meaningful contribution to their community. And evolutionarily, by the time you're 12 or 13, you should be contributing to your community. You wanna feel like you're a contributing member. And schools insulate us from contributing to our community. And and I think any chance that they have to have that agency to feel like they're they're giving back, I think makes students really happy and everybody wins.
0: Yeah. And I love the thought process there. And I do think that, I mean, there are a million ways to design and be creative, but uh, too often, I think as educators, we say, well, here's what I have to teach. And you're asking me to do a game. And we see it as this thing that's on the opposite side that we need to walk towards with our content. And then that becomes a heavy lift because it doesn't make sense. But but if you flip it and you say, here's this thing that kids are really into, let's just even call it a video game. All right, well, what, what is a video game? Well, it has times where you engage and play and other times where you are uh, maybe that spectatory individuals watching a cut scene. Okay, well, how is that like the classroom? And so you go, well, there are times where we're going to – learn together. And so maybe that's, that's the cut scene. And maybe the times where they actually get to play is the the actual doing of the work. And if you approach it from that direction, it ends up being, I think, a little bit more accessible sometimes. And, and like you said, too, we're only one person with one perspective and one experience. And the more that you open that up to talking to other educators or I mean, the students are the people who are going through this experience with you, right? So to get their uh, insight into how they might help evolve what they know to be the common rhythms of your day-to-day classroom uh, to step into those kind of experiences is really there's so much energy to it. And as you were talking, I'm glad you went there as well. That, that's where we shift from labor to work. That, mm-hmm. That's that's where we go. I'm willing to give this the extra five, 10 hours of time. It might take over the course of a couple months to get ready because it is going to be fun to show up every day. And mm-hmm. I'm going to like feed off of that energy from kids that is going to drive me through December. That's going to get me through you know, the, the slogs of February. <laughs> and, totally. um, and I... If you want an example of what we're talking about, last year, Paul and I around this time uh, did a pod on alternate reality game experiences and designing those for the classroom. So i certainly point you to those because those are uh, phenomenal examples of what it would look like to do this in a way that's beyond, uh, and again, not to discredit the Jeopardy game, but if you're saying, well, well, tell me more, like what does it look like to really blow things up and and transform the classroom? That conversation captured some of those types of experiences.
1: Mm-hmm. And I would never want to discourage anybody from playing a Jeopardy game because no, it, it, yeah. they, they are fun and kids do enjoy them. But just, there's, there's just different kind of levels of the whole thing, right? Yeah, but
0: sometimes you have to see it to know what what is possible, I guess, is That's what exactly I would say. Paul, you did that for me as well. Like getting a chance to see what you had tried in your classroom forced me to think about things differently. And I'm probably similar to some of your students. I was like, oh, well that, okay. <laughs> Here's how it right. like, lands with, with my sensibility as an as a educational experience
1: designer. Totally. And it's funny when I I was always fascinated by the philosophical question. I don't even know if it's philosophical when I was a kid about the idea of if somebody has never seen before, if you were born blind, how do you describe color to that person? Right. And you can't, right? Like essentially you have to see to understand color. And so it's similar to what you're saying that if you don't see something, if you don't have an alternative system or model, you're not likely to be able to think your way out of what your current circumstances are. And it's funny because schools are pattern inducing institutions, right? Like schools are patterns upon patterns upon patterns. I mean, we have these kind of September renewal cycles and we're on very tight schedules. You're at the same class at the same time, every Thursday, all of these patterns but I think the key to success is trying to break patterns, right? The key to success is thinking ourselves and not just around the patterns of how schools go, but to one of the elements to become a more creative person is to break the patterns of your own thinking, right? If you normally you know, pull out of the driveway and turn left, but you have the option to turn right, turn right once in a while, like see a a slightly different view, break your routines. If you, you know, if you're used to doing something a certain way, try doing something a little differently, like sidestep your reality a little bit and try to experience something unexpected. Because I think when we get lost in our routines and we get lost in our patterns, we wake up every morning expecting a certain type of day. And usually our expectations are met. Right. But if we wake up, you know, with the enthusiasm of like a special day, you know, whether it's Christmas morning or whatever, where we have a different kind of energy in the way that we approach the day before our big trip or whatever the case may be, we can wake up in a dark Monday in January and have that energy and bring that to our practice and 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 agitate things and i think that once we start breaking out of these kind of mental ruts we're going to start seeing some really magical things happening not just in schools but in the world and i think that digital culture is way more receptive to that kind of dynamic thinking that kind of dynamic activity than industrial culture and we're definitely at the transition now historically where we're shifting out of industrial culture and digital culture and there's negative things to that for sure like you know surveillance data all the stuff we're seeing with polarization algorithms there's a lot of really kind of a dark side to digital culture but there's also a very humane side that I feel is possible um, by freeing up our kids by freeing up our minds a little bit more and reconceiving of education in a slightly different way or significantly not even slightly I'd like to say a significantly different way
0: uh I hate to digress to the conversation from last year, but that one example of that that I would share that you certainly had input on helping to design was when I was in the classroom, uh, my students would go and pick up their novel for the unit from a desk where there was a secretary there who would get all those books and they would come up and request uh, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or Fahrenheit 450, which whatever had been their selection. And so when we got into our game, uh, they were actually prompted by... uh, one of the fictional characters, to ask to use the restroom. And so uh, one by one, as students kind of watch this video independently, not knowing the the charade was that they, I didn't know what they were watching, even though obviously I'd made the piece. Um, They start raising their hand and everybody peels off to go to the bathroom until I have no students left in the class. Uh, Now, this whole exercise was just to help them get their book, right? But they were then sent to buy the video, Uh, A different staff member who was not teaching at the time, who then they were supposed to say a a code word to who then gave them an object and they took that object to that help desk where they were then given their book. Um, But that in doing so, they had to kind of and this was a a unit that was focused in on dystopias and this whole idea that you have to kind of break the system, go against the culture. And so they were being asked to sort of uh, inherently like like lie (laughs) about where they were headed. And then they had to talk with it uh, and another adult, maybe someone they didn't know in the building. Like, Love that aspect of it. They'd get an item, come back, and then they got a uh, their book was wrapped with a code on it, and that got them into their Google Classroom, right? And so, like, those are all very familiar rhythms where you're typically would just turn left, go get your book, <laughs> right? Exactly. But, but if you go right, there's a whole other like avenue, and there's intrigue and curiosity that's built by that and ownership. And just a reimagining of it as an experience. And it was really interesting, too, that some students, uh, as uh, almost like sheep, I hate to say it, like make that, that connection, but they followed their peers to the wrong place, got the wrong object and got the wrong book. And we had to stop and say, hey, like, this place is not that conveyor belt all the time. Wake up to the fact that this experience isn't going to be that way. And, and that was day one. Uh, and so oh. I... I Understand what you're saying there. And and for those that might say those opportunities
1: don't exist, it can be as something as simple as walking to pick up a book. Yeah, exactly. It it reminds me so much of the idea. You know, I, I read this recently where, so golf, in the most efficient way to win at golf is to pick up the ball walk over to the hole and drop it into the hole right like that's the most efficient but but that's not a game like the game is you have to use the club and you've got it the the point of golf is not to get the ball in the hole it's to get into the ball in the hole in as few swings as possible right and and if you know how much more boring and less exciting would golf be if you could just walk over to the hole and put the ball in i mean would would, golf would not be golf nobody would ever think about that right so we create these complications the complications is you've got to use a stick you start far away you can't touch the ball with your hand like and they're all artificial complications and what it does is by creating these kind of artificial complications you've created a highly entertaining game a highly engaging experience and it's exactly what you're describing the, the equivalent of handing the student the book at the beginning of the term is like going to the ball, to the hole and dropping the ball in the hole. By having all of these different things, like the the videos and going to the bathroom and all this type of stuff, you are creating those complications that create, and, and, and that is the trick to all of this, is very mundane, everyday things that we take for granted. Like we start class with attendance, we give grades for assignment, all of these things that we take as absolute bedrock, untouchable foundations of education All of those can be agitated. All of those can be seen differently. All of those can be redeployed. It's just having both the will and the imagination to see things a little differently and to experiment with your kids. So yeah, it sounds awesome.
0: Oh, and as you share that, it makes me think too, there were times where I would hear and I would be saying it myself as well, like amongst our teammates, we would go, this is so simple. I don't understand how anybody could mess this up. And it's in those instances where we actually tried then to make it more difficult. (laughs) because sometimes sometimes that is it is so we have whittled this down to the fill in the blank to the sentence starter to the uh, to where it takes the cognitive challenge out of it (laughs) and without that yeah school can really start to feel like a labor because you're not not inspired to do the the work and so um so that being said take us back to your your class a little bit on a little bit of a bird walk there and maybe just kind of Speaking a little bit more to what you're gleaning from all of that, uh, obviously you said that the students have produced some really great work and the course has
1: resonated with them. For sure. Yeah. So so one of the things about the really nice thing about teaching a games and learning course during the pandemic, where I've, I've only taught the course online, is that It is a great course to teach online because you're constantly creating breakout rooms and throwing the students in together to play games together and to talk about the games and debrief on them and think about how they connect to learning. So uh, one thing I learned by accident as I was getting sort of more and more accustomed to, to teaching online was that formula of breakout rooms and engaging activities in the breakout rooms and switching gears regularly is absolutely the way to run an online class like many have reported in their comments at the end of class that they've never felt a greater sense of community from a class that they have been in only online and and you could tell their friendships develop because they spend so much time in small breakout rooms and they're constantly being randomly mixed up that everybody gets time to talk to each other and and as we know in the larger kind of rooms people are more reluctant to speak they're a little bit shyer you don't so i think i think breakout rooms and games were the key to all of that and what it does is it creates a participatory class right so i'm not even though it's a university class i spend very little time lecturing you know, I'll have my little half hour, 45 minute presentations on various topics or whatever the case may be. But I discovered very quickly that the best way to engage them is to constantly be changing gears, getting them into groups, throwing games at them and create a variety, kind of like a smorgasbord of different experiences. And, And what you get is at the end of, you know, a two or three hour class, I mean, it feels like the time has flown by. You've learned a lot. You've had these kind of really rich interactions. So in many ways, the class reflects that participatory kind of model that it's preaching, right? Uh, that that it, it very much embodies the qualities that, that I'd like to share. And the other thing that resonates really well with the class, and I hate to say this, but a lot of what's taught in teachers colleges is theoretically interesting, but not really tied to classroom practices. A lot, many are, I don't wanna generalize again, But I think what really appeals to my students is that I share lots of tangible ways that teachers have actually done this stuff, right? Like when I'm talking about using video games in education, I give them all of these case studies of the ways that teachers have used video games in education. When I'm talking about alternate reality games, I show them the way that teachers have incorporated alternate reality games in education, so, what that gives them is that belief that yes, I can do this. It's been done, right? Like I'm sh- you know, the blind man has opened his eyes and can see color, and you're showing them all these different colors. So they're there, it definitely kind of opens their minds to the possibility. And I think that's really important is having those tangible examples, not just kind of in the airy, fairy, abstract world of what might be interesting, but they can really connect to those, to those. And all of those together create, I think, a participatory atmosphere in the class which is ultimately what it's, what it's aiming for.
0: When you started there, it made me think of a piece I wrote in college that sort of referenced um, this idea that you'd show up for class and the instructor would say, Today's 45 minute session uh, is going to be a lecture on the ineffectiveness of lecturing.
1: <laughs> right. Well, that's it, right? That that's it. That that is a that is a staple of teachers' colleges, right? Yep. They're being they're being told about all these innovative innovative ways to teach in the most traditional form possible. And, and that's been a big criticism. And I have certainly tried very, very hard to break out of that, even in my social media and education class. It was an asynchronous class, which means we never actually met online. My games and learning class is synchronous, but social media was asynchronous. And I thought this is a wonderful opportunity to leverage social media as a way for us to create community when we're not in. And and I have to admit, it was a bit of a mixed result. Like it wasn't all golden. I I felt that, for example, what went really well with the class is I had students respond to the readings using uh, TikTok videos and that was that went off like gangbusters because so many of these teachers are very versed i gave them tiktok videos and other options but a lot of them chose tiktok videos and it was amazing amazing how they could really capture the spirit of an academic paper in a 2 minute tiktok video and and because they're so versed in the language of tiktok and all the different sort of elements that that converge there that that was really uh, you know a home run it was really effective um, and many of the assignments were based on using social media in an effective way. What I did try to do was I started a Twitter account for the class, And what I was hoping is that would become a very active site. We had a platform that we use where we have forums where they can you know, post questions and answers. And they were very active on those forums. But they were never very active on that TikTok site that i started i mean a few people signed on was it was pretty dead and what i learned and i think as teachers we have to learn is that um not everything is going to work the way that we wanted to right and then so i thought okay why is this because it's not authentic i'm forcing them to go onto this sorry this twitter uh account that I've created for the class. It's not part of their day-to-day activity. They wouldn't naturally be doing this. A lot of them aren't on Twitter, actually. A lot of them are on Instagram and and TikTok, and Twitter isn't part of their... So it was kind of an artificial imposition onto it. And that's when I think school is at its worst, right? Like, it's an artifice. It's kind of a, a fantasy world that we create. And the more we can connect it to the real world and accept this worked. this didn't work, the better. So if I were to redo this social you know, media and education course, that would be one element that I would remove. And I'd have to think a little bit more creatively, how can I leverage social media outside of the course to create an interesting dynamic with my students? And, and obviously, the first draft didn't work out as well. And I'll certainly try that for the next draft. But overall, the course was awesome. They loved it because a lot of these teachers said, they had never thought about using social media in their practice and that they felt that if anything, it was kind of toxic and something they were trying to get away from as opposed to including in their practice. But after reading all the articles, the case studies, policy documents, et cetera, et cetera, most of them walked away with the desire to use social media in their practice. And one of their final assignments was they had the option to either create what's called an autoethnography where they study their own social media use for a month and report back on it, which was my favorite thing to mark. I mean, it was fascinating how honest they were and how they talked about their anxiety and depression and and things that were positive and negative. It was really, really powerful. The other option they had was to create a lesson plan for whatever age group or class that they were teaching that incorporated social media. And it was remarkable the level of creativity and and safe, meaningful uses of social media in their practice. And this is coming from a group of students that were very skeptical of the use of social media, even though they were heavy users themselves, because of that, they thought, oh, I don't know if I want to bring this into my classes. So it uh, it was really awesome for them to see things in a different light.
0: Gosh, there's an openness required to... Yeah, being willing to entertain those types of ideas and then that growth mindset piece of actually stepping up and stepping into those spaces and making those connections. And uh, over the duration of our friendship, I've seen you consistently operate in those spaces where we're be open to whatever is evolving next and then uh, finding the creative ways to... Move education in those directions. And uh, I think, you know, time goes by so fast uh, in these podcasts. And so, uh, so, probably have to rein it in at this point, though, we could talk all day for sure. But I do want to ask, and really in that same vein, a little bit more about Goldbug Interactive. We've not even like informally got a chance to chat about this. So tell me a little bit more about this initiative. Uh, now, the co founder and CEO. This yeah,
1: part. pretty funny. I never thought I'd be a co-founder or CEO of anything, uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm happy. Goldbug, Goldbug, the name has a, has a really interesting backstory, and uh, not not a small part of which is a short story by Edgar Allan Poe called "The Goldbug." and I will let uh, anybody who's interested go out and read that story, and and if you do, you'll understand why it connects to our studio and and, and part of our ethos. But essentially, Goldbug Interactive is a studio that I co-founded with my partner Elisa Navarro-Chinchilla, who's based in Mexico City. She is a video game developer, has been developing video games for 15 years. And we have worked on a few projects together. Uh, We created a series of online games for the McGill University Library System to connect their, their online students with the library spaces and artifacts, and it was a lot of fun creating that. And once we worked through a few of these projects together, we decided to start a studio where we offer a range of services, everything from creating digital artifacts, animation, comics. We have, we have people to do all of this stuff, but also uh, to provide professional development and training uh, and, and using game elements, both to teach about media literacy, me- digital literacy, uh, how to incorporate games in your practice, how to incorporate video games in your practice, a whole range of different ways to help and inspire and, and impassion educators about the possibilities of interactive media and interactive practices but also for corporate training and using game elements to make professional development and training more engaging, to actually practice what we preach and use kind of gamification aspects to to training. So we do a whole range of things at the intersections of games and learning.
0: Well, Paul, you're one of the most uh, creative educators that I know, and I always appreciate the opportunities we have to sit down and chat. And so I Love that we'll get a chance to kind of point people in your direction too, uh, because I think we all can stand to think a little bit more along some of the lines that we've discussed in our conversation here today. Uh, If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you?
1: They can write me at my email address, pauldarvazi at gmail.com. And there you go. So they can follow me on Twitter at pauldarvazi, as well. I'm always happy to take in a few new Twitter followers. (laughs)
0: Well, there you go. So follow Paul on Twitter uh, and reach out if you'd like to collaborate. And uh, Paul, thank you so much for your time and for your advocacy on this topic and uh, a lot of fun. Great way to start off the new year.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I can't think of a better way to start off the new year. Andrew, you are so kind and generous and complimentary. It's always a pleasure. My day is always brighter after having a session with you. So thank you very, very much.